Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we are with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage that the Lord Jesus Christ do their work quietly and earn their own living. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're working through a series called Deep Rest. And over the course of this series, what we've been doing is, is really talking about um, we can, how we can get rejuvenated, re-energized for life. Um, when we're talking about deep rest, we're not simply talking about a distraction from the busyness or, or a, a satisfying uh, momentary uh, break. What we're talking about is engaging life in a new way in a way that actually empowers us for life, right? In a way that, that we, it's not an escape from life, but actually creates the kind of life that's worth living. We're talking about deep rest from which we are empowered to live life. And, and the premise of our series has been this, that deep rest comes from a life-giving, vital relationship with God, that we were created to be in relationship with God, and when we're not, it cuts us off from um, the source of life, from the source of our deepest rest. And what it means to be in that deep, life-giving relationship with God, very simply, is to experience His delight of you because of the work of Christ, and to re- renew your delight of Him because He is infinitely delightful, that He is the source of all that is beautiful and good and, and, and pleasurable, that, that He is the archetype of everything we truly want and desire in life because everything else is a shadow of Him and His character. So when we're talking about deep rest, we're talking about renewing our delight, our joy in the person, person and work of Christ. And we spent a lot of time over the last um, five weeks just kind of doing a lot of heart work. And, and if, you haven't, you know, if you weren't here, you haven't joined us for those that are online, I would encourage you to go back and grab them. But it's really, we've been looking at what are the motivations of our heart and how do we unpack them? How do we, how do we follow the, the strings of our heart to find out what's pulling us in different directions? And, and how do we renew our heart in such a way that we find joy. There's two things left for us to talk about this week and next. Um, we're at the point in the series where we're just going to talk very specifically and very practically about work and about a day off. <laughs> we're going to talk about work today. Um, and next week, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to actually take a day off, but not just a day off, but a Sabbath day and how that's different from a day off, how it's rejuvenating, energizing, um, and, and how we actually do that in a very practical way. Okay, so this week we're going to talk about work. Now, when we talk about work, most of us honestly are going to fall in one of two camps as far as what motivates us to actually work or how we perceive work. So, take a look at these two statements and see which one you think um, it tends to be your natural inclination. Almost all of us will lean toward one or the other. The first is that work is a necessary evil that stands between me and what I want. Work is a necessary evil that stands between me and what I want. So I work 
because I have to. It's, it's a necessary evil because what I really want is on the other side of work. I need to get money to get there or, or, or I have to work on my family because what I really want is, um, you know, the happy family that goes out to dinner and everybody praises. And so I have to work to get to that place. Work is the necessary evil to get there, um, right? Uh, what about the second one? Work is an ultimate good. It is what makes me worthwhile. So one runs away from work, run, one runs toward work. One says it's a necessary evil, but I have, to, I have to do it to get what I want. The other is it's what gives me what I actually want, respect or success or power. So think about this, you guys. Which one um, would a mom who resents her kids fall into? Say it out loud. Yeah, the first one. The first one. A mom who resents her kids sees her work as a mother as a necessary evil. It stands between her and what she really wants, which might be a peaceful, quiet afternoon, right? Or uh, sanity um, or, or other things that children tend to take away, right? Um, so she sees work as a necessary evil. I have to do this. It's my responsibility, whatever. What about a, a student who can't settle for a B? Which one? Yeah, second one. Second one, they're coming to the table and basically saying work is a necessary good. I have to succeed to feel good about myself. I have to be on the honor roll. I have to get straight A's, right? Um, will it make a difference 50 years from now, whether or not I got to be on that paper? No, but it makes a difference right now because it affects how I feel about myself. It affects whether or not I succeed, whether or not I'm a winner, right? What about um, somebody who dreams about a job where they do the least amount of work for the most amount of money, which describes many of you in here. Yeah, it's going to be the first one. Work is a necessary evil. What I really want is the money. The work itself is is a necessary evil to secure the money so that I can get to the thing that I really want. Uh, What about a stock trader who simply can't stop checking the market, cannot disconnect himself from his smartphone, has to be continually... What's going on there? Yeah, second, work is a necessary good. I have to win. I have to succeed. I have to stay connected because it's what... When I win, I feel good about myself. When I win, in that case make money. That, that's when I am a success. What about an activist who says, man, I got to move to the ghetto to keep it real. I have to move to the ghetto to keep it real. Number two, number two, work is a necessary good. What I do in my activism is what makes me worthwhile. And for me to keep it real, man, I got to be, I got to be sacrificing at a greater level than most people around me. Otherwise I don't compare well to those Facebook activists, right? All right, here's the thing, you guys, we all tend to fall into one of these two camps naturally. Sometimes we fall, you know, you might, you might flip-flop, actually. You might fall into both. But most of us, I think, tend toward one or the other. We tend to either run away from work, um, but we engage it because it's necessary to get to what we really want, or we tend to run to it, um, and, and we run to it for the wrong reasons. We run to it to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, to succeed, to, to win people's approval or whatever it is, right? Here's the thing. This is what I want you to get. If this is what motivates us to engage work, it will rob us of joy. And when it robs us of joy, it will rob us of rest. You will not be able to work from a place of rest if this is what motivates you to engage work because it will rob you of joy. If we take God out of the picture, which honestly is where most of us start, that's our default mode, we tend to go through, God, through life as if God were not personally involved and engaged, that He didn't really design this thing. If that's where we start, if that's where we stay, we really only have these two options. There really are, are not too many other options on the table, but thankfully the gospel gives us a third way. 
There is a third option for the way we engage our work, and that's what I want to explore this morning, and it's this, that work is a gift from God, and it ultimately is an expression of worship. It's a completely different way, not just of approaching our work, but approaching the way we think about our work. It is a gift from God, and it is an expression of worship. A.W. Tozer, um, who is a, um, a theologian, brilliant thinker, said this, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, think about that for a sec. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. Kind of interesting statement. More important than your personality set, more important than your skill set, more important than what you can achieve. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because here's the thing, you guys. What you think about God will ultimately influence what you think about everything else in life. What you think about God will affect all of your behaviors, all of your choices, all of your values. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And where I want to go this morning with that is this. What we think about God is going to determine how we approach our work. We have to think right thoughts about God. In other words, we have to have a good theology of work if we're going to have a right practice of work. We need to think right things about God if it's going to free us to engage our work in a way that glorifies God and frees us to joy. The Thessalonians had a problem in this area, a small group of them at least. Small group of the Thessalonians, the passage we read is is basically a a, a butt-kicking passage where Paul's coming in and he's like, you lazy people, stop, right? Get off your duffs, go to work, stop mooching. Now, to give you a little context, the Thessalonians were struggling with some big theological questions. And when you read through the two letters to the Thessalonians, what you find is that they had difficulty with this concept of the day of the Lord. And I'm not going to unpack all that, but really what it comes down to is they were afraid that, that God's that Jesus' returning was so near that it had already passed, and they missed it. And they were freaking out because they're like, well, what does that mean? If we missed it, where does that leave us sort of a deal? Well, the weird thing with this theological confusion is that it really was confused. It seems that they not only thought that His coming had already come, but there was also this really pressing teaching that it was going to come. In fact, it would come at any moment. That in and of itself is not a bad teaching, Um, except for the way they took it and applied it. There was a group of people in the church that basically said, since Jesus is going to come back, like right away, let's quit our work. Let's quit working, right? Maybe maybe they got hyper-spiritual about it. Maybe they were like, I'm going to quit work so I could be full-time holy, right? I'm not going to go do that work stuff. That's distracting from holy, right? I'm going to be holy. I'm just going to pray and read my Bible and, and talk to people about Jesus and right? What, what Paul says about them is instead of being busy at work, they became busy bodies, right? They were walking around and, and in the name of prayer requests were gossiping. In the name of counseling were sticking their nose into things. They were just becoming a nuisance to the community and they were becoming mooches to the community. People had to support them, right? They, they still had to be fed and clothed and housed. And, and, and so they were playing off the sympathies of others like, like, Jesus is coming back anyway, man. Look how much money you got, right? Just take me in, feed me, whatever. And Paul has a really simple solution for them. Stop feeding them, and they'll eventually go back to work. That's the bottom line. He's like, look, if they don't work, they don't eat. It's a simple solution. Pretty soon, their need to consume will drive them to produce, right? So so 
Paul gave them a very practical solution to their problem. What I want you to see is that their problem was first a theological problem before it was a behavioral problem. They thought wrong things about God. They misunderstood who God was and and how He designed the whole idea of work. They had a bad theology of work, and that led to a, a wrong behavior that grew out of that, right? And here's the challenge, you guys. We also often have a bad theology of work. We don't understand how work fits into who God is, how God created the world, how God created us, and how our behavior is supposed to, um, in turn, flow out of that. So what I want to do is, is we're going to take a moment, and we're going to talk about a good theology of work. We're going to talk about how work fits in to the person and the character of God. And then flowing out of that, we're going to talk about how that affects how we approach work. So that's kind of the two stages we're going to. We're going to talk about um, work and how it relates to the character and the work of God. And then we're going to talk about how that should influence the way we see our work. So first, uh, the first thing that I think we need to notice when we're talking about God and related to work is that work isn't something God created for us. It's something that is innate to His character. He didn't create work to punish us, right? It is something that is innate to His character. Work flows from the very nature of God. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, that's bad news, right? You're like, I thought work was the result of the fall. Like when man rebelled against God, isn't that when, when God said, you know, the world, the, the earth's going to produce thorns and thistles and everything's going to be hard? That is when he's, basically what he said is, I'm going to make your work harder, right? The, your work is going to be much more difficult, and much less rewarding. He didn't say, I'm now going to give you work. They already had work. Why? Because it actually flows from the character and the nature of God. When we open up the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that whole chapter is God's first work week, right? It's six days of God's productivity. On day one, He creates this, and He sits back and He says it is good. On day two, He creates this, and then He sits back and says it is good until He gets to day six when He creates mankind, and and He says, lo and behold, it is very good, right? And it was so good, He took a day off to enjoy it, right? But we get a glimpse of the productivity of a working God. He is, by His very nature, continually working. Because when He is working, He's being creatively productive. And there is an energy at the heart of God. There's a need, a desire, a drive to be creatively productive. And when He created us, He created us in that image. So I would say that God's first week, work week was pretty productive. I don't know about you. Uh, pretty much made the world and all the living things, right? Um, a lot of diverse and crazy things, right? A lot of focus, a lot of energy. Probably worked really, really hard for God. I don't know. Um, but it was a work week, right? It was incredible. So work is innate to the character of God. Second thing we see is that work then becomes a gift to us from God. Work becomes then a gift to us from God. See, God created mankind in His own image. We were created to reflect His nature, right? And since work is innate to His nature, that that creative productivity is innate to who He is, He created us to be creatively productive. And we see that again in the very, very beginning chapters. When Adam and Eve were created, God placed them in what? You guys know the story. 
even if you're not a biblical literist, right? It's the Garden of Eden. What's a garden? A garden is a cultivated place of wildness, right? So God produced an earth full of raw materials, and then He began the cultivation process, or if we want to put it this way, the culture-making process. He created culture out of the raw materials of creation and gave the gift of culture to Adam and Eve and said to them, I want you to maintain, protect, and develop this. You are to take this gift of culture, you are to to enjoy it and protect it and develop it. It, it, Theologians call that the cultural mandate, that he mandated that they become culture makers, that they be productive and follow their productive, creative, productive God, right? And the Bible then is pro-art and pro-science and pro-creation and pro- all of the things that are related to us taking the raw skills, the raw materials of life, and making things that are worthwhile, right? So God gave them the gift of culture to protect and create, right? So He created us to work and delight in creative productivity, in culture making. Thirdly, we see that work, His work, is an expression of His mission. That His work isn't simply um, for the purpose of working. His work is motivated by His mission. What is God's mission in Genesis chapter 1? God's mission is to ultimately magnify His glory. And He does that by creating a world that in all of its complexity and all of its beauty reflects that glory and then creates mankind specifically to be image bearers of that glory. And in so doing, to magnify God's glory and live in the overflow of His joy. God was on mission to magnify His glory and create a mankind that could live in that glory and delight in it, take joy in it, because it is ultimately and truly delightful. God was on mission and God worked out of that mission. Now, understanding how, God, how, how work relates to God should have a powerful impact on how we understand how we relate to work. And that's where we're going to go now, okay? We've talked about how work relates to God. Let's talk about how that impacts the way we relate to work because our theology should shape our practice. So I want to show you some simple applications of the things that um, we're exploring here. The first is this that we should see that we need to be productive culture makers. If we really see work in relationship to God, we should see that we need, and I pick that word carefully, we need to be productive culture makers. I'm not saying should be, like guilt. Should be like, man, I'm saying need to be. We're wired for it. God wired us to be creatively productive because we were created in His image. We need to work. There's a piece of us that needs to be productive. We're wired to work to maintain and create culture. Here's the deal. Some of you see work as a necessary evil, that thing that stands between you and what you really want. And so what you do is you come to resent the work but value what it produces for you, whether it is money or time or... um, a specific kind of family or whatever it is, right? But you're seeing work as that thing that's standing in the way of what you really want. As long as that's the way you produce work, you'll never be able to rest in your work. You'll never be able to find joy 
in your work because you will resent your work. And the problem is, is that you're not working with the way you're actually wired. So while you're resenting the work, you will become more and more restless because you were actually designed to work. You were designed to work in a delight that you're denying. You'll be resisting God's design of your heart. And as a result, it will only increase your restlessness. And it doesn't matter how much work you can avoid. It doesn't matter if you can get the best paying job in the world so that you get all the money for absolutely no work. Your heart will remain restless because work is, in fact, an expression of how you've been wired. You were designed to be creatively productive, to create culture. Now, I've talked about this word culture quite a bit. I want to pause for a minute at this moment and say, what does it mean for us to create culture? Now, a lot of us, when we think about creating culture, we think of high culture, you know, creating art or, or music or literature, engaging in a creative process that produces something of aesthetic value. And that is an expression of culture, but that really is too high of a view or, or too high of a definition. Andy Crouch wrote a book called Culture Making. It's a brilliant book that talks about how we, being created in the image of God, actually are called to create culture. And this is how he defines culture. Very simply, culture is what we make of the world. Culture is what we make of the world. So that absolutely includes art and, and, and um, literature and, and music, but it includes so much more because we're continually making something of the world, aren't we? Every single day. We're making something of the world in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. We're in the process of both living in and consuming culture and creating culture. You can't help it. You are a culture maker. The question isn't whether or not you will be a culture maker. The question will be, what kind of culture are you making? Are you simply reinforcing the culture you consume, or are you, in fact, purposely, intentionally creating a culture that reflects the way you've been wired, which we'll unpack more in a moment? But what I want you to see is that means artists, mechanics, mothers, students, salesmen, dentists, fast food workers, they're all culture makers. They're all culture makers because they're all in the process of making something of the world not just interacting with culture, not just responding to culture, but actually creating culture through the interaction that they have with the rest of the created order. And one thing I want you to see is that this immediately dignifies the most mundane work that you have in your life. This dignifies the most mundane work you have in your life. Whether it's changing diapers in the middle of the night or answering the phone for a business or working for the government, which may seem like the, the least productive thing on the face of the earth, especially right now. Um, here's the thing. There's dignity in the work. N- not because you're producing something of eternal value, but because you're, you're approaching um, what you do in a way that, that reflects the eternal value of how you do it. It's not in what you produce, but how you go about producing it that gives it its value. So the most mundane work is, in fact, a dignified work that that is given to us to reflect uh, the way we were created. 
when I was um, teaching high school, um, I, I gave an assignment. Some of you guys know I, my previous life, I was an English teacher, high school English teacher and a principal. And well, when I was a high school English teacher, I, I gave assignments. And one of the challenges with teaching English is that it's not like math, right? Two plus two equals four, no matter how you add it up, right? Um, but a poem, <laughs> you can't add a poem, right? And some of you, that's why you hate literature, because you can't add it, right? You can't take one line and two line and make it equal to the third line, right? There are ideas in there that have to be understood and interacted with. There's, there's a, a story that has to be understood in the context of a broader story. It, it really is about ideas and themes and, and how things tie together. And I'm an English guy, and those things are beautiful to me, and I want my students to recognize that they're beautiful. And so I'm consistently pushing them to engage the writing process, the creative process, the reading process in ways that are, that are a little bit more challenging than, than what they necessarily want to give, maybe ways that aren't necessarily intuitive to them, but I want them to experience um, engaging with this material in a deeper, more powerful way. And so I came to the point where I started using grading rubrics as a tool that I would use in my classroom to help them engage this material in kind of a higher level way, a more complex way. And what that means is this, when, when I gave an assignment and I said, I want you to write an essay. I didn't just say I want it to be a 500-word essay, five paragraphs with a clear thesis, okay? That's one way to give that assignment. The problem is you can come back with absolute mindless garbage that's in five paragraphs with a clear thesis, and you're like, okay, oh, there's an A, all right? What I said was I want to see you interacting with these ideas in a way that shows, and I would spell it out, an A, a B, a C. So so a C would say shows adequate understanding of the topic material. Um, shows adequate effort in trying to illustrate the points, right? An A is shows exceptional understanding of the content, content material. Somebody's really wrestled with this stuff and tried to understand it. Shows exceptional um, development of ideas in the essay, right? So an A showed an exceptional level of work. A B showed superior level of work. C, adequate. You just met the bottom line, right? D, subadequate. F, you, you didn't show up. Um, and so that's... That's how the grade would come down. Well, one day I get a call from my principal. One of my parents is called and wants to set up a meeting with me. So I go in and I sit down with a, a girl and, and the principal and two parents. And um, the parents are, are like, we don't understand why our daughter's getting a C. Um, our daughter has done all of her work. Our daughter has not missed a single assignment. Our daughter has done exactly what you've asked at every turn. Um, and I was a little bit prepared, so I, I came in and I showed him the rubric and I showed some of the work. And I'm like, you're right, she did exactly what I asked, but, but she didn't do any more. She didn't show me an exceptional level of engagement with the material. She didn't show me an exceptional level. She didn't even show me a superior level. All she did was look, what are the baseline requirements of this assignment? And then she gave that to me. So she gets a C because that's how it's described. The parent looked at me across the table and said, Mr. Mizell, you don't understand. We are a union family. And in a union family, you don't give any more than is asked. Because as soon as you give more than is asked, that becomes the new level that is asked. So you need to change your way you grade. And I said, no. <laughs> Respectfully, no. Uh, you know, I, this is not a political statement, nor was it a political statement there. I'm like, if you, that's what drives you, great. But that is a horrible mindset to bring to education. And it's a horrible mindset to bring to life. You guys, when we're looking at ourselves as culture makers, when we recognize that God is calling us to be creatively productive, that requires way more than just the baseline of effort. 
It, it, means way, it means pushing ourselves to actually engage the process as employees, as entrepreneurs, as parents, as students, to engage the process with all the gifts and all the talents and all the strengths that God has given us. Yeah, Steve, it's not that important. The task may not be, but the way you do the task is. Because the way you do the task reflects whether or not you believe that that you have been entrusted by God to be creatively productive in reflection of the fact that He is a God who is creatively productive. If you get that, then what you're going to do is you're going to push yourself. You're going to push yourself to do it the best you can to produce at a higher level than maybe even is expected or appreciated. Not because you're looking for the accolades, but because you know you are in fact honoring the way you've been wired by God. The second thing we need to see is that our work is an expression of worship. So we need to see that, that we were that we need to be productive culture makers. We were, in fact, wired to be productive culture makers. The second thing we should see is that our work is an, is an expression of worship to the God who created us that way. If creative productivity is, in fact, the heart of God, is, is part of the very nature of God, and God created us to be creatively productive in reflection of His character and for His glory, then our work is first about worship. All of it, you guys. All of it. I don't care what your employment is. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what the task is. It's first about worship. What that means is that your work is not first about money. Is your work about money? Yes, if you're talking about outside employment. Absolutely. Right? That was Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians. Make them hungry enough that they're willing to go get a job and earn money, right? It is about making money, and we do work for money. And there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and working hard and getting ahead. But your work is not first about money. Your work first is about worship. Your work is not first about making your family happy. That's a byproduct. It is first about worship. Your work is not first about getting good grades, getting accolades, those are good things, but they're a byproduct. It is first about worship. It is not first about achieving success. It is not first about making a positive impact on society. That's a good thing, but that's not what it's first about. It is first about worship. It is not first about being able to improve your lifestyle or the lifestyle of your family to provide for the good life. It is not first about that. It's not a bad thing. It is first about worship. See, these are, these are not bad things, but they are not the primary things that drive us in work. If we are going to have a good theology of work that leads to a good practice of work, we're going to recognize that we are creatively productive because we serve a creatively productive God. And in being creatively productive, we glorify that God. We bring praise to that God because He's the one that gave us our talents. He's the one that gave us our abilities. He's the one that gave us our wiring, our inclinations. And in pushing into those things deeply and developing those things, it is, in fact, an act of worship to the glory of God. Our work is first Godward. 
and it is secondly earthward. And we need to keep that order in mind. If we don't, we will end up with a bad theology that leads to a bad practice. And our work will become an obstacle or a God. And we need to recognize that it is neither. It is an expression of worship. And it changes the way you, uh, you approach your work. When I first became a believer, I was at a Bible college. Some of you guys know that story. I was 17 years old. I went to a Bible college. I was an unbeliever. Um, in fact, was pretty hostile at that point to the faith. But I went there because my mom was willing to pay for me to go there. So it was the farthest I could go away from home and still have my mom pay for it. So I went all the way from Southern California to Dubuque, Iowa, which was like going to Mars. I mean, it was like crossing all of the world's galaxies into a very distant and foreign place. And while I was there, it was a little Bible college, and um, they didn't have a lot of money. And so what they did is when you were a student there, they, they assigned you tasks. They didn't have a professional cleaning staff, and so the students were required to clean. And um, the students fondly called that slave labor. And so my slave labor was to clean the dining room um, once or twice a week. I don't remember, but it was after a meal. It was a huge dining room. And, and um, so my job was to go in and, and clean it. I'm a bit of an overachiever. Um, I tend to, this is my weakness, I tend to define myself by my work, define my, my security and my success. And, and I love to do things faster and, and not necessarily better, <laughs> but definitely faster than anybody else. And so especially in a task like that where I'm like, this is stupid, it's a worthless task. My whole job was to figure out how quickly. It was supposed to take two hours. I could get it done in about 30 minutes. I just flew through that room. I was throwing chairs up onto the tables. I had a specific path where I went through with, and then I would go through and I would mop and I would throw the chairs down. Bam, I was done and I'd be walking out. I won, right? Now, the quality level, not great, right? Quality level, not great, but my goal was not to produce the greatest quality product. In that case, I was like, I just want to get this done and get out of here. Well, then I became a believer, And I kept doing that because that's what you do. Um, And one day it crossed my mind as I was flying through the room. um, I wonder if this glorifies God. (laughs) Could cleaning the dining room, in fact, actually glorify God? It was a thought I'd never thought before. It was the weirdest thought ever. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, there's resistance in my heart. Like, really? Like, it matters whether there's crumbs under the table? Right? That, That... is of internal importance to an eternal sovereign God, right? Come on now. He's got more things to worry about than crumbs. But I felt the the conviction of the Spirit basically telling me it's not about the crumbs. It's about whether or not you're going to do this as worship. And so I slowed down. And I mean, I still put the chairs up really fast, but I slowed down as far as just cleaning. Like, I, I took my time, and, and I couldn't, like, if I walked by and I'm sweeping and I saw crumbs under the table, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like going back, okay, here we go, you know, and so I'm, I'm like actually cleaning and doing all the work, and it takes a lot more time, and it takes a lot more effort, because I recognized that it wasn't what I was doing, it was how I was doing it, and I could, in fact, turn it into an act of worship. Now, here's the byproduct that happened with that. I actually came to enjoy the task. Not because the task was significant, but because I was doing it in worship. I found myself singing as I was cleaning the dining room. I I came to hate it less. Like, I never got to the point where I was like, yeah, I get to clean the dining room. But it it went from, like, I despised that task. Like, I hated it. It was something I just endured to the point where I was like, I get to actually glorify God in doing this. See, it changes your experience of work when you work to the glory of God. 
When you make your work an act of worship, it's no longer about the work itself. It's about glorifying the God who loves you and wired you and wants you to magnify His glory so that you can live in the overflow of His joy. So we work because God wired us to be creative producers. We work as an expression of worship, and we should finally see our work as following God on mission. Remember that God's work flows from His mission, right? God created because He was on mission to glorify Himself, not because He was self-centered, but because He is the most glorious thing in the universe. So He created us to magnify that glory and then live in the overflow of that joy. Right? We became the joy catchers. We were the ones that, that, that ultimately um, lived for His glory, but then got the overflow of His goodness and His beauty and His joy as those who danced around Him as truly, infinitely glorious. Right? So God was on mission to magnify His glory. When we rebelled against God, that mission didn't change. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, mankind rebels against God, rejects God as the center of the universe, rejects God as, as infinitely glorious, and says instead, I will be the center of the universe. It's not your kingdom, it's my kingdom. You're not the center, I'm the center. Well, God's mission stayed the same. The method of that mission changed. He went from creation to a rescue mission. And that rescue mission is seen most clearly in the coming of Christ. When God Himself became one of His creatures, that He might live the life we should have lived so that He could die the death we deserve to die. In our place as our substitute, bearing our condemnation so that we could be forgiven. And when he rose again to new life, he did it so that he could have the power to redeem and restore, right? Our sin question was not not just swept under the rug and ignored. It was judged and dealt with in the person of Christ, and we can be forgiven and restored as a result of that, right? So God's mission stayed the same, to magnify his glory so that we might live in the overflow of that joy. The method of that mission has changed. Now it is seen in the person and the work of Christ. Instead of just creation, it is the, the, the message of recreation. That the God who created now recreates by actually becoming one of His creatures and doing the unthinkable, becoming our substitute in sin so that we could become His brother and His sister in glory to redeem and restore. You guys, listen, our work is not something we do for God. It is something we do as we follow God. God is on mission God is moving continually to magnify His glory and pour out His joy into our lives. Our work is not something we do for God. It's something we do as we follow God. His mission guides our work and gives meaning to our work. There's a couple of things that 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 means for us. First of all, we are not what we do. The weird things sometimes happen in conversations, you know, when someone comes up to you and says, um, hey, who are you? Your first instinct is to give them your name, right? Yeah, but yeah, but who are you, right? The next thing is almost always what you do, isn't it? Who are you? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, here's the thing. What this tells us is that we are not what we do. I am not a pastor. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm one who has been reclaimed by the work of Christ, for the glory of God, that I might live in the joy of being a follower. What do I do as a follower? I'm a pastor. I am not what I do. I do what I do because of who I am. 
And you're thinking, well, that makes sense because you're a pastor and that sounds really spiritual and special and all that stuff, right? I'm not. I do this thing, right? I'm in sales. I'm, I'm uh, an engineer. I'm a student. I'm, I'm a full-time uh, stay-at-home parent, right? Well, here's the thing. It's not what you do that makes it sacred. It's how you do it. There is no difference between sacred work and secular work, right? There's no divide like, well, I work full-time for the church, so man, I am holy, right? My work is holy, right? That's not the way it works, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you are following Him. Where is He going? He's going on mission. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're following Christ, you're following on mission, or you're not following, right? And if you're following on mission, that means whatever you're doing is holy. Whatever the job is, whatever the task is that you have in front of us is, in fact, sacred. There is no thing, such thing as being called into full-time ministry. That's like saying, my full-time job is breathing air, right? It doesn't make sense. My full-time job is to be a human. Uh, yeah, if you're a follower of Christ, your full-time job is to follow, that's your identity. That's who you are. And so it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what the job is. It is, in fact, sacred. It isn't what you do. It's, it's who you are. And it's out of who you are that you do what you do. So whatever you end up doing is, in fact, an expression of the calling of God on your life. Yeah, but Steve, I work at McDonald's. Can you follow Christ at McDonald's? Can you glorify God, worship God in the way you do your work at McDonald's? Can you, in fact, create culture in the way you interact with people and do your tasks at McDonald's? Yeah. It's not what you do. It's who you are, and who you are determines how you do it, right? Paul when he, when he talks to the Thessalonians, he says, you guys remember when I was there, I labored night and day so I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Paul actually was a tent maker. He made tents, right? He had this really hip job where he created these things and people lived in them and they were really good and he could sell them, right? And, and, um, and so they were popular. When we remember Paul today, what do we think of him as? A great tent maker? That's what he did for a living? No. The tent making was a means to an end. It wasn't what he did. It was who he was, and who he was determined how he did it. Let me tell you a story about a friend of mine. I'm not going to use his name just because I didn't ask him, and, um, although I'm sure he would not mind. But um, he was, when he was in college, he was a follower of Christ, and he kind of got really lit up by the gospel. And so, like a lot of college students, when he got lit up by the gospel, he started looking around him saying, how can I be involved? What, what does it mean for me to, to just be a full-time follower of Christ in this environment. So he was, he was drawn toward campus ministries. And so there was a specific campus ministry that, that he was being drawn toward. And, and so he's like, I'm going to, man, I'm going to go kind of full-time. And what that means is that you're actually becoming a full-time fundraiser because ministries are broke and they don't pay people. You have to actually pay them to work for them. And so he went into like full-time fundraising mode. And and so he started doing this fundraising stuff, right? Like everybody else. And they would all come to the meetings and they would sit down. Hey, how are you doing on your fundraising goals? How are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Every single time, he was like light years ahead of everybody else. He was an incredible fundraiser because he was an incredible vision caster. He could talk. <laughs> he was a great talker. And in talking, he could really get people fired up about a vision in such a way that they actually wanted to give to it. 
And so he was raising all this money. And over the course of that, what he realized was that he was, in fact, a great salesman. God had wired him for sales. He came alive in sales. So he decided not to go into full-time campus ministry. He instead went into full-time sales. Now, sadly, there are some people, maybe even in this room, that would automatically think, man, what a sellout. You totally misunderstand the dignity of the calling of God if that's the way you look at it. What he was doing was honoring the way he was wired. And by the leading of God, he was, in fact, honoring God by honoring the way he was wired. And instead of going into full-time ministry, he went into the full-time ministry of sales. Now you're like, yeah, but I bet you he makes a lot of money. He does. He makes a lot of money and he provides very well for his family. You know what else he does? He gives generously. God has given him the gift of generosity and given him the ability to harness his gifts for the advancement of the mission of God. He takes great joy, not only in making money, but in giving money, equipping the mission of God. He's in a tremendously generous person, right? He is, in fact, in full-time ministry because who he is determines how he does what he does. It's not what he does, it's who he is and, and how he does it, right? He's a follower of Christ, a full-time follower of Christ who's in sales, who uses his gifts to the glory of God. He worships God in his sales. He does very well in his sales. And in that process, God has equipped him to advance the cause of Christ through his generosity. Here's the deal. If we don't see our work right, we won't do our work right. We'll spend our time running from work as if it were an obstacle to be avoided or overcome to get to something better. Or we'll run to our work and look to it to do for us what it can't do to make us feel successful or meaningful or significant in life. Our work was never intended to do either of those. Our work is meant to be an expression of worship done in gratitude and worked out on mission to glorify the God who is creatively productive and created us to be creatively productive. This will revolutionize the way we approach our work. And believe it or not, we'll actually equip you to have joy, even in menial tasks, and to come away rusted instead of drained and exhausted. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to actually take a day off. More importantly, what it means to actually take a Sabbath. How do we engage rest in a meaningful, powerful way that renews our souls, equips us so that we are uh, living the kind of lives we want to live? All right, for now, I'm going to put some questions on the overhead. I'm going to ask you to pray and, and do some business with God. Um, create a space for the Spirit of God to speak to you, okay? We'll share communion in a minute, minute, but for now, let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that as a creator God, you created us to be like you. You didn't create us as, <laughs> I don't know, some weird thing to be watched, mildly amused by. You created us so that we might know and have deep relationship with you because we reflect your nature and your character and your wiring. And Father, this is an area we get it wrong. Our culture gets it wrong. The way we approach our work, Lord, robs us of joy, robs us of rest, robs us of, of true meaning. So Father, I pray that you'll, you'll create a space where we can hear the leading of your Spirit that, Lord, if we need to repent of our laziness, you'll give us the power to do that. If we need to repent of 
of overworking, of, of gaining our identity from our accomplishments, our, that, Lord, you, you'll free us to do that, that, Lord, you will free us into the beautiful, humble confidence of the gospel, that we know we're approved of because of Christ's record, and we know we don't have to prove ourselves, that we can do what doesn't feel good with joy because our joy doesn't come from what we do, and, and we can do what often steals our identity without letting it because our identity comes from you. Father, speak to my friends. Let us reflect your character.